Good morning. Good to see you this morning. It is important that we <clears throat> come together and worship together. There's, there's something about this rhythm, and Jake has alluded to it and they did too, that, that over the long haul shapes us. In our world, we have these, we want quick fixes. We want things to happen immediately. We want to go to church and feel better right away. But it, one thing about worship is it's this long-term relationship with God that week by week shapes us. And so uh, we're in our season of foundations moving through the story of the kings of Israel, uh, trying to listen to what God might be saying to us through the lives of these kings over 3,000 years ago. And we've seen Saul and his mistakes focus on the perceptions of others. We've seen that he'll do anything he can to stay in power, even if it means hunting David down. And we've also seen that God has chosen David to follow Saul as the next king, Today we're going to move into that time when David is actually the formal king. It's, it's a challenging text. It's 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'll be honest, I laid awake in bed for about an hour and a half last night because I, I, I just realized this is way too much that I'm trying to do in this next six hours of sermon. Uh, Actually, it's funny because I just thought, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and I'm going to try to guide you. I really believe that this is an important text for us, but there's a lot in there that I touch on. And I do have a reason. We're going to spend a chunk of time on the story, a pretty big chunk of time telling the story of 2 Samuel 6. And then at the end, I'm going to talk about two temptations that, that attack us um, that relate to this story and I'm going to tell you a truth that we need to know about those temptations and a calling that we need to, to resist those temptations. So that's kind of the whole story. I hope you can follow along with me. I've been kind of regretting biting off this much. But once you print that outline and you send it out, I, I want to cover it all. But I'm, I'm also hoping I can take you along for the ride. You guys, you guys ready for that? You can do that, you think? Okay, uh, let's just read the text. Second Samuel chapter 6. Verses 1 to 23, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring, up, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled, and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him. And his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, 
He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing the linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. David returned home to bless his household. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. See what I mean? A lot in there. Um, What's happening in this section of Samuel is what you would expect to happen at the beginning of a kingship. David establishes the kingdom. He's doing these things that he needs to do to kind of entrench himself in power. Uh, in the previous, if you, read, if you read through like chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 of, of 2 Samuel, you'll see that process. In chapter 5, David, we, we see that there's a king, there's a capital, and there's a big victory. Saul is dead at the end of chapter 4. At the beginning of chapter 5, they make David the new king. He's 30 years old, and he reigns for about seven and a half years in a place called Hebron. And then he decides he wants to take the city that we now know as the Jewish capital of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. So so he goes up, he conquers the city, he fortifies it, he builds a palace. This is all happening in chapter 5. He takes wives and concubines and has children, the things you would expect a ruler to do. Uh, And he grows in strength and power. Now, what happens when a king establishes himself is the enemies decide we're going to shake this thing up. So they approach David. The Philistines come and they fight against him. And David wins this big battle because the Lord works on his behalf. And so what he's done in this first period of time in chapter 5, he's become king. He's established his capital city. He's built his palace and he's subdued his enemies. And now in chapter 6, what, what we see him wanting to do, I've got, I've got the palace, I've got the power, I've the people, I'm their king. But what he wants to do now is he wants to start bringing the ark home. And by the ark, it's the ark of the covenant, the symbol of God's presence. It's a, it's a box made out of acacia wood. It's about three and a quarter feet by two and a quarter deep and two and a quarter high. It's covered with gold. And on the top are these two cherubim. There's a picture I think that's going to come up. They threatened to me that they were going to change this on me and make it hard. But I said, don't mess with the Ark of the Covenant. So that's kind of an artist's rendering of what it might look like. If, you want, if you're trying to get space size, maybe you remember your grandmother's house. And at the foot of her bed, she had a cedar chest that she kept her blankets in. Anybody have that? That's kind of the size. It's not a huge thing. But it's covered with gold and they, they carried it on poles um, inside were the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on it. There was a a golden pot that had manna left from the Exodus. 
And there was Aaron's rod that budded. You can read that story back in Exodus. It was the ark of God, the ark of the covenant of God, that God was with his people. That was the symbol. And in the tabernacle, the the Shekinah glory, this cloud of God's presence would hover over those angels' wings. And remember, the priests would go in once a year to put blood on the mercy seat to, to atone for the sins of the people. David wanted this symbol of the presence of God in Jerusalem with him. It's a powerful image of God's presence with the Jewish people. So it was time to bring God home. It was time to bring the ark home. Now, the question, though, that comes is, where had the ark been? If you read the story, you remember a long time ago when Samuel, uh, when Eli was a prophet and Samuel was a, a, a young man, Eli's sons took the ark into battle against the Philistines. They were going to use the ark as this magic token to win the battle. They lose the battle. The Philistines get the ark. And if you read the whole story, it's back in, in 1 Samuel, say, 4 to 7. You can read the whole story. The Philistines take the ark. They set it up in their temple. And a couple mornings in a row, they come over, and their idol of Dagon has fallen on its face before the ark. And, and they're nervous. They're worried people get sick. So they send the ark out. And on the way home, people look in the ark. You know, they think, oh, let's see what's in there. And, and people die. There's a great story about it. So what happens is... The ark finally makes its residence at this house of Abinadab um, because nobody really wants it. So he takes it and, and cares for it. And the numbers are up in the air. It depends on which scholar you read. It could have been anywhere from 20 to 60 years, depending on how you add numbers and when things happened the way it was. But anyway, it was there for a long time. And so David says, I'm going to go down to this house of Abinadab. We're going to get the ark. We're going to bring it back. But as you heard in the story, this did not go as planned. He sets out with 30,000 men to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But it's an understatement to say when the guys got up this morning to go get the Ark, they didn't expect the day would end that way. Right? They didn't expect it was going to happen this way. There were some important but forgotten details. You see, in David's defense, it had been a long time since anybody had moved the Ark. This had been, and, and this whole process from the Old Testament Exodus, when, when the training came about how to care for the ark and how to carry it and what to do with it, especially as it was in the tabernacle moving around. It had been hundreds of years. And so in Numbers 4, God had said there are some specific ways that you need to transport the ark. There's a, a whole section in 4, 1 to 15 of the book of Numbers, but let me just read the last verse. And after Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry these things that are in the tent of meeting. Do not touch. That's why the, the poles of wood were there. They would put the poles in and they would carry it, but they would not touch the ark. And that's how it was to be moved with some reverence and awe around this thing that, that was the symbol and the place where the presence of God was with his people. Now, on their, in their defense, Abinadab's sons had done, and David had done, they, they built a new cart, it says, to, to carry it. No cart, had ever, this cart had not been used before except for this. And they hitched up the oxen and they were carrying it. And there were 30,000 men going with it. That's a huge, this is a moment, right? They're paying some respect to this to this thing, this Ark of the Covenant. And they're singing and they're celebrating as the presence of God come to Jerusalem. And then we come to verse 7, which is a verse that unsettles us. I think if we're honest, it unsettles us. 
I'll read six to set it up. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. Now, that Hebrew word is very vague. You don't know if they fell down. You don't know if they got mired in the mud. There's a lot of situations it could describe. But for some reason, the cart must have tipped and it looked like the ark was going to fall into the dirt or onto the ground. And, And... Uzzah, who had been with this ark for years in his house, reached out to steady it to keep it from falling off the cart. And in verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now talk about a moment. (laughs) Just imagine if you'd been one of those 30,000 walking along. Just imagine if you'd been David and all of a sudden, there's a mo- something's happening, and you realize what's happened is that Uzzah's touched the ark and has been struck dead. How many of you remember where you were on September 11th when the planes hit the tower? We all do, right? Everybody's got those moments. I can remember being a kid, getting ready to head out to school one morning when the, when the, um, when the space shuttle exploded. I was watching it on TV. I was like, oh, mom, it launched. Look, let's see it before we go. And I was walking out the door, and I, I'll never forget that moment. Right? For some of you, uh, a little bit older than me, uh, John F. Kennedy, when, when John Kennedy was assassinated, you remember where you were. This was one of those moments that these guys, do you remember where you were? Do you remember when Uzzah touched the ark and died? It's, it's that moment for them when they realize that God is bigger than they thought he was. He's, he's powerful and almost terrible in a way that they had not realized. And, and God's a mystery in that moment. Wait, we're trying to do a good thing. We're trying to bring the ark back to the capital city. We've, we've got it on this card and us is reaching out to protect it. And he dies. And you see, we, we have a reaction to that. And David had a reaction and a response. First, he was angry. The Hebrew word says David was yihar, which is the same exact word where it says God was angry, God was, it said his anger burned against Uzzah, and then in the same word it says David was angry with God. And we can ident- I can identify with that. Do you? Like, why? This, this guy's taking care of the ark all these years, and all he's doing is trying to steady it. There was danger of it falling to the ground. What was he supposed to do? And, you know, I don't, I don't have a great answer for this moment as to why it happened. I I was talking with somebody this week and they said, it just seems like God has all these rules and if you punish these rules, or if if you break these rules, he's gonna punish you. And I said, that's not quite the image happening in the story here, right? Like in my house for my kids when they were growing up, the rule was don't touch the burner on the stove. That was a rule that we had. But when they touched the burner on the stove, I didn't punish them for touching the burner, right? The punishment was what happened to them. Their, their physical, maybe some of you guys are stronger than me, but our physical skin cannot handle that kind of heat. When we touch it, we get burned. And, and I think what this story highlights is this gap between the holiness of God and the brokenness of humanity. It's not that God was like, I told you not to carry it that way. I'm going to teach you a lesson. The reality was the, the ark was this symbol of holiness that was so great that if we come in contact with it, we can't live. That's, that's the symbol of what's going on. There, there's a deep divide between God's holiness and our brokenness. 
It's not that God's punishing Uzzah trying because he carried the ark wrong. It said inherent in Uzzah and inherent in God are two very different things. There's a gap there. And, and it's such so deep a divide between the holiness of God and the brokenness of humanity that it needed something as severe as the cross to heal that breach. Now, we're going to talk about that. We're going to come to this table. And, and I want you to realize that, that the breach there, God took it upon himself to heal that distance between the holiness of God and our brokenness. And, and we'd like to have a good reason. We'd like to settle that text. Wouldn't you like to come away from that text not a little unsettled? Wouldn't you like to feel good about that verse? We all would. But I think it's there because it leaves us unsettled. It forces us to realize that God's holiness is something huge and powerful and scary almost. It keeps us from making God ours to take where we want him, to align him with with our political party or assuming he's, he's on our side in our argument with the neighbors, right? We want to take God with us everywhere. And, and things like this make us realize we don't take God places. David was angry and he was afraid. It said in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of God come to me? And I think we feel that too, right? If that's true, if all he did was steady the ark, I probably would have done the same thing, especially if I felt it was a valuable thing. If that's true about God, how can I come anywhere near that? You know, we can be afraid of God because of that story, or we can be afraid of the fact that we just don't know what God might do. But his anger and his fear, I think, are normal reactions, but they cause a change in plans. The ark makes a pit stop at this house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now I thought, who's a, what's a Gittite? You ever, you ever wonder what a Gittite is? Well, now you're going to hear. A Gittite is a guy from Gath. There was another big tall guy from Gath. He took a stone right here in the forehead. Remember his name? Goliath was from Gath. He was a Gittite. The interesting thing is, Gath was one of the five major cities of the Philistines. So what David's doing here, you've got to get the dynamic. He's just defeated the Philistines. He's the king. He's in charge. They're in subject to him. And, and he's bringing the ark home, and somebody touches it and dies. And David says, I'm going to send it over there to that Philistine's house. Because <laughs> if we're going to lose people with this ark, it's not going to be my people. So he sends it over to Obed-Edom's house. If people are going to die from this thing, I, it's, not, it's not our people. It's going to be those guys. And then you see three months passes. He goes back to Jerusalem, and he waits for three months and then there's a second and a very different attempt. He tries again. He hears about the blessings that are coming on the house of this guy. And he says, hey, we, we need to bring the ark here. So he, he's learned a little bit. If you read the same stories in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 15 tells a little bit of the background. He, David says to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, you're David, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of, the God, of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. And you can see from the text, did you catch that? On the second time in, uh, there were some tentative first steps. Did you, hear, did you get that? After they'd taken six steps, they paused. 
And David made a sacrifice. Now, let that play out in your mind. Let's just say you're one of the Levites that gets to carry the ark now. Okay, we got poles on it, guys. We're doing it right this time. Can you imagine those guys going? How did they approach the ark? And how, you know, you're touching it on the pole, but you don't want to touch. And imagine those first six steps. How tentative. And after six steps, they're like, okay. And David's like, okay, let's just stop for a minute. Let's offer a sacrifice. Let's make sure we're doing this right. And then they begin the rejoicing. When they'd taken six steps, these tentative first steps, followed by a celebration. And once again, singing and dancing, celebrating the arrival of the ark. David gets a bit carried away. He's got the ephod on this robe that, of the, the priest where he's celebrating before the Lord. And, and the text basically says he dances it off is kind of what happens. He's, still, he's not naked. He's got his undergarments on or whatever, most likely. Uh, but he's, he's so excited about the ark coming and he's dancing so hard that the robe just comes right off. And in that event, at the end of our story, you see Michael and David's differing perspective. David's danced so hard, he's so excited, and Michael has seen it from the window, and she is not impressed. You've heard that phrase, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy, right? <laughs> Michael is not happy. Remember her genetics, her dad, Saul, was very concerned about appearances. That's something that was big in her life as she grew up. I'm sure it was important to her to be seen as dignified. Saul was her dad, the king, and it was important for him to be seen as the king. And she despised him when she saw him, and she despised him with her words in verse 20. When David returned home, and what's he returning home to do? To bless his household. He's coming home to bless the household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. You don't have to. How many of you think that's sarcasm? That's sarcasm in Hebrew. Hebrew sarcasm right there. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. She was embarrassed. She was worried about what people saw. But look at the different perspective of David. What does he say? He says, it was before the Lord that I did this. That's who I was celebrating before. And he says, you know, you think that's bad? I'll become even more undignified than this. You ain't seen nothing yet, Michael. I'll even be humiliated in my own eyes. You see, they've got a whole different perspective about what's going on there, a different way of perceiving what is happening. David's dancing before God, and he's completely free about the perceptions of other people. Yeah, he's dancing so hard he dances the robe off, but he doesn't care because he's dancing before the Lord. Michael very much cares. She's embarrassed. There's so much in this story. How do we apply it? <laughs> I told you there's a lot there. I want to take two of the words. One from Uzzah's death. It says, God was angry because um, Uzzah was ir irreverent. Because of his irreverence, that happened. And one from David's response to Michael where he says, I will be even more undignified than this. And I want to talk about how do we work in such a way so that our living is reverently and undignified. How do we live that way? Those, I think, are the two main areas where this story, where we can be tempted. In the area of reverence and in the area of our dignity and the way we look. The first addresses this idea of irreverence, this mysterious, dangerous power of God. I think today we're often tempted 
toward the danger of religious familiarity. And I'm reading a bit into the text here. I'm going to tell you that. But when we live with something for a long time, we become used to it. Right? How many of you have something in your house that needs to be fixed, but you've learned to work around it, and it just stays there? My house up on 574 Park Street, up the hill from where I live now, when we built it, uh, we were scrimping and saving, and so I did some of the finished work myself, some of the finished trim carpentry, which is not a good idea. My wife learned that, and Sig did our finishing in our other house. But there's one, there were a couple little corners where they didn't look very good, and they needed to be fixed, and they bugged me for about three weeks. And then we lived in the house for 10 years, and I fixed it before we sold it, right? Because I got used to it. I just didn't see it anymore. I was familiar with it. We get used to things like that. And the text doesn't say this, but I have to think that in some way, Uzzah was a bit familiar with the ark. He'd lived with it for at least 20, maybe 40 years. And I, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's not that he didn't, take it, didn't think it was special, but he forgot what it was. He forgot what it stood for. I mean, he put it on a new cart. He obviously was reverencing it. And he didn't want the oxen to stumble and it to fall off. But at some point in his familiarity, and this is where the danger is for us, at some point in our faith, we start protecting God. We get familiar with him, and we don't realize it's him protecting us. We feel the need to take care of him. We've lost some of the awe and reverence of the power and the holiness of God because we're used to it. Somewhere in all those years at the house of Abinadab, there had been a shift from God taking care of them to them taking care of God. You know, we do the same. They did it even with Jesus. And I mean, there's this great story at Simon's house, right? The, the, the Pharisee. And Jesus says, this woman comes in and wipes his feet and Simon's all upset about it, right? Because how dare she do this? Does he not know who she is? And Jesus says in Luke 7, you see this woman, I came into your house, but you didn't give me any water for my feet. You took me for granted. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which should have been a standard greeting. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, which was another way of greeting a rabbi. But she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven... Loves little. See, what he was saying is, Simon, you, you don't have a clue who I really am. She gets it. But you're taking me for granted. And I think sometimes we forget this very important truth. And it's not the world that forgets this. It's us. It's the people who've been around God. And we need stories like Uzzah to remind us of a truth that God comes on his terms, not ours. As much as the story makes us uncomfortable, we have to see that God is very different than we are. He's not this thing that we use for our benefit. He's God, right? That's what he is. Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives men life and breath and everything else. This... This temptation for us as religious people to lose the awe and reverence of God. We, we need to be careful there. Annie Dillard, who I love, she's a great writer. 
and she's got a little essay called Expedition to the Pole, and she compares a worship service to these explorers going to the North Pole. And this is what she says in one of the sections. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. See, that's this idea that God is bigger, and we lose that sometimes. We lose it. It's a temptation. He doesn't need us. We need Him. He doesn't need our protection. We need His. Now, now this could be overwhelming and fear-inducing unless we saw that the way God comes on His terms is in Jesus. That's how God comes on His terms. That's where we see God in the flesh. That's where that huge gap between His holiness and our brokenness gets brought together in Jesus. And because of that truth, the call, God comes on His terms, the call is surrender, obedience, and trust. Instead of fear of the holiness of God, we don't want to minimize it. We don't want to lose our awe for it, but we don't have to be afraid of it. Because in Jesus, we see that God calls us to come to him now. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the temptation is that we forget God is God. <laughs> and we begin to bring him along and do what we want with him instead of realizing that, that we need to come to him as he is. And we can trust that, we can surrender to that, we can obey that. The second temptation that I see in the text is the idolatry of our own image. We like to look good. We like other people to like us. Michael despised David because he looked foolish and she felt like it reflected on him. How many times have you despised someone because you feel like they made you look like a fool? His joyful dance made her look bad, or so she thought. You know, there's a passage in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. We'll put it up on the screen. I just want to read a little bit of it. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. They'll be so focused on themselves and how they look and how they're perceived that, 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 that will skew everything. And at the end of the text, it says they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Because they've fallen victim to the idolatry of their own image, they want to look good. It's subtle and it's powerful. And what happens is it makes us the very center of the world. Everybody has to like me. They have to perceive me this right way. I have to worry about that. Now, David didn't have that issue, did he? David had, had at least at this point... <laughs> Read the rest of it. He struggled with that too. But at this point, he didn't have it. Jesus says in Mark 8, he called his crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? 
Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the way people perceive us that it becomes an idol, just like Michael did. The truth is that counters that is to realize that we live in his presence every second of every day. David said, I'm, I'm I'm not Michael, I'm not even worried about them because I'm dancing before the Lord. That's where I'm, that's what I'm doing. It's all about me being in his presence at that moment. You thought it was about you, Michael. You were afraid that moment was all about you because you're so concerned about your image and you've got to make it look good. The truth is, reality's not about us, Michael. It's about God. Paul later in Acts 17 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, he says to the people listening, we are his offspring. God is... is is in everything around us all the time. We live in his presence every single second. And that's why the idolatry of our image is so horrible because it shrinks our perspective down to just us instead of realizing we're living in the presence of God. God's doing something here bigger than us. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. I rise on the wings of the dawn. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, if you can see that every second you're living in the presence of God, that that's what life is about. It's about living and drawing in a relationship. Remember we talked in 1 John about coming to the table of the Trinity, being able to draw life from them every second. That, That is the call to open ourselves to this larger perspective. That's what freed David. He saw his whole life as lived in the presence of God. He says, you know what, I'm chosen to be the king, but I don't care what I look like because I'm worshiping God there. It's bigger than me being the king, he says. And when you begin to see life from this larger perspective, it sets you free. John the Baptist, he must become greater, I must become less. John saw it. David wrote a psalm. I talked about this at the meeting the other night. Psalm 24, most people believe it was written for, the, for this walk, walking the ark back to Jerusalem, Psalm 24, and it starts like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. You see, when you're tied to your image and the way people perceive you, you miss that bigger perspective. You get worried about situations <laughs> You get wrapped up in the news. Who's going to win this election or that election? Who's going to, or, or what are people going to think of me? What if I, but if I speak to that person, if I help out that person, or if I make this financial decision, what if we're, we're trapped in idolatry to an image instead of realizing that all of our life is to be lived in the presence of God? And if, if you can grasp that, if you can start to realize that it doesn't really matter how people perceive you. I mean, I'm not saying you'd be a jerk just for fun. Please don't go to that extreme. But, but stop making it an idol. Live in the presence of God and realize, as this table is going to say, He accepts you as you are. He loves you right where you are right now. Living in that presence will free you from this idolatry to your own image, what you think people need to think about you. This kind of life allows us to see that this is the place where God owns, where everything in the world is His, every person that lives in it, is his, and that he's, he's carrying this thing to his completion. He's going to finish it. That gives you freedom to rest. It gives you freedom to come to the table 
that he invites us to today. Let's pray. God, there's so much, and I feel like we haven't even started to look at the story, but just these two things. We, we, we are so thankful for grace that we can approach the throne room with confidence because of what you did on the cross. But God, I, I pray even in that grace, you will inspire awe in us. The fact that you would pour out your blood, allow your body to be broken for us, would welcome us, but it would also inspire in us an, an understanding of your holiness that leaves us at a point of surrender of our whole life to you, no matter what you call us to. And God, when we build up idols of our own image and our own perception, <laughs> and we're worried about what other people think of us, and we're afraid to do hard things because of how it might be perceived, or when we don't want to be exposed for who we really are, and let you love that, but we want to try to present an image that people will love. Forgive us, God. Invite us to your table. Let this broken body and shed blood remind us of your awesome holiness and that you have bridged the gap so that we can be in your presence every single second of every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes I wish you could be a fly on the wall here during the week because Jake came up to me about midway through the week and he said, do you think you could choose a passage when I'm doing communion where a guy doesn't get smote by the Lord? <laughs> It'd just be easier to do communion maybe if somebody didn't get struck dead. And I, this, it's a hard passage. 2 Samuel 6, it's a tough thing. Uzzah did what I think we all probably would have done. And God struck him dead. But I, I think the reason it's important that we have that passage is because it does show that the gap between us and God is so huge. I mean, it's huge. We've got to realize that. And yet, God didn't stand over on his side of the gap and say, come on. It says he took on flesh. Even though Jesus was, was equal with God, he didn't grasp that, but he made himself nothing and became a servant, being formed in human flesh. And he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, that, that table says God didn't wait on the other side, hoping we would get to him. God came to us. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes we forget the big gap that he came. And the story of Uzzah reminds us of that. So my, my hope for you this week is you can, can go in awe of the holiness of God and in awe of the grace of God who would come to us and offer himself for us. Amen.